Product Management. This is another episode of the Real World Product Management, and I have John Ginego. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yep. Okay. So, John uh, is here with us today. Thank you so much. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. So, my name is John Ginego. I'm a product manager for a company called Vericode, um, based in Chicago, Illinois. Thank you. Um, we don't have a very specific agenda, so it won't be like some of our previous episodes when we, where we only talked about uh, data-driven decisions or very specific presentation and do the Q&A. Uh, we just want to explore uh, with John uh, his career path. I think there are some interesting things that he's seen that personally I've never seen before, and he has a, a very interesting experience being product manager in his company. And um, he has a really interesting experience con- continuously going to the market with some of the things. So those are things I'd like to explore today. So John, why don't we start with uh, going on a high level uh, through your career path? Sure. How do you how do you become a product manager? How did you become a product manager? What brought you here and what are you doing? Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I, you know, like everybody or most people in the field, I don't think that there's a real front door. And uh, so it's not uh, unusual for me to say that I feel like I came in the side door also. Uh, so I, I've worked at this company uh, called Vericode for almost seven years now. Uh, prior to that, I worked in a consulting role in a couple of, uh, in a boutique firm. And before that I worked in a, a, a large company. Uh, so throughout my career, I've, I've done a lot of interesting, uh, technical work and gradually started moving towards, you know, more consultative services and joined Vericode in a, in a consultative, uh, services based role. And, uh, after about two years of doing that, uh, there was an opening on the product management team that, uh, I pursued and, uh, I feel like still, I feel like I talked my way into it and, uh, the rest is history, I suppose. Uh, I've been doing it for, uh, close to four and a half years now and, uh, has uh, been an interesting, an interesting ride, uh, with some, uh, acquisitions and, uh, you know, seeing our company transition from a late stage startup to, uh, uh, for, to a more, uh, middle-aged startup, I suppose is kind of the state state that we're in at this point. Um, and a couple spots in the middle. Um, so you mentioned John, sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure, uh, I, I get this out of you sure. <laughs> in this episode. Uh, you've mentioned that your startup was acquired yeah. here and there. Yeah. And I see this as a really interesting challenge for a product manager, given that you stayed, given that you're, yeah. well, first of all, you kept your job. And second, uh, the companies that were acquiring you, your your startup, kept the role. Yeah. Although I'm a, my understanding is with the acquisition, first thing that is to go, first thing is to change is the business direction or, or business goals. Yeah. So I would love for you to un- uncover that because I've never, I've never been in that situation. Yeah. Um, if you could just walk me, maybe walk me through, maybe just overview of the challenges that you as a product manager experienced 
uh, throughout the through these acquisitions uh, through this process? Sure. Uh, well, so I think uh, you know something that everybody in product management at least should be keeping in mind is sort of the overall business strategy that your company is in in terms of you know what's the CEO thinking about and you know how how are your decisions as a, as a PM you know whether it's for a whole product portfolio or, or managing individual features within a product you know going to contribute to that business strategy and you know when I started at, at Veracode in in 2013 and when I started on the PM team in uh, 2015. Uh, you know, we are very much in the late stage of of a startup. You know, we we are funded by um, by venture capital, and you know, we're on the track of of the typical VC startup you know trajectory, where you know the number one metric the VCs are are paying attention to is growth. Uh, not not terribly focused on profitability, not t- terribly focused on anything other than than growth as as an overall metric, and uh, you know that that had been informing the company's decisions as it informs many startup companies' decisions in terms of the product priorities that they take. Uh, for various reasons, uh, the startup stage of our of our company effectively ended um, by being acquired by a very large software company um, which which was a, a, an unexpected but not not actually that that terrible of an outcome to be honest with you um, the uh, not, not great not terrible well you know I mean everything's everything's got uh, pros and cons I suppose but I, I mean I think as a whole it, it turned out to be pretty pretty benign I'll say. Um, but I think one thing that that was good about it, and you know, our the company that acquired us, uh, a company called CA Technologies, it's uh, one of the largest software companies in the world. It's been around for decades, and um, you know, they they were very progressive in terms of their approach to acquisitions. They were they were acquiring uh, high growth businesses, and basically, you know funding them to continue on that on that growth trajectory and to you know gradually start nudging them towards the path of you know becoming a more stable part of the overall company portfolio and so you know in many respects you know our our point of view as a uh as a startup didn't change all that much when when we were acquired because our acquirer basically said you know, here, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're invested in your success. You know, we just, we just paid, you know, a, a decent amount of money for you. And, you know, you guys keep doing you, we're not going to mess with you. Um, as long as you keep up your, you know, your growth plans and, you know, figure out a way to, you know, make this a mutually beneficial type of thing, you know, um, what we didn't see coming was that about a year and a half after we were acquired, uh, CA itself was acquired uh, by a much larger company uh, called Broadcom, which, you know, uh, made the news as being one of the largest all cash acquisitions in history. Uh, Also made the news because Broadcom is traditionally a a hardware company acquiring an all software company. 
Uh, so it was very uh, odd, I suppose, for lack of a better term. And it was especially odd for us in the uh, in the part of in, in the part of CA who had been on the acquiree side, you know, um, you know, cause we'd been kind of doing our thing and, you know, uh, unexpectedly had this large, uh, hardware company as our potential new owner. And, um, long story short, they decided they didn't want anything to do with any of the, you know, these startup e parts of the CA business and, and spun us and, and several other parts of the business out. Um, and, uh, we ended up, uh, being sold by Broadcom to a, a private equity firm, uh, who is now, uh, our, our, our financial backing. <laughs> uh, so for those of you who may have heard about private equity and, uh, you know, kind of has a bit of a, sometimes a negative connotation to it, uh, our experience with private equity and our, our, our firm is, uh, Toma Bravo. It's one of the largest PE firms in the world, and uh, they've been excellent. They've been very positive, and 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 only only good things from my perspective. But one thing that all PE firms share in common is is you know they're focused on a on on profitability and focused on getting a, a solid return in a relatively uh, narrow time frame compared to those in venture capital world. You know we had typical VC investors going on timescale of, you know, eight plus years. Uh, whereas private equity looks at things generally from the four to five year lens. Uh, and after what, after those four to five years, they may continue on with the investment, but you know, they, they want to see, they want to see progress in, in four to five years. So, um, this is a long, a long uh, meandering way to, to talk about, you know, orienting the company from from focused on growth as the prime metric driver to focus on both growth and profitability. Um, and if you have to pick between the two, you try and balance them. But you know, profitability is still a really important uh, thing to take into consideration. So, no, it made sense. Sorry, it made sense for me uh, that you went all this way to explain, kind of like tell a bit of a history, uh, because it makes sense of in, in terms of your responsibilities as a product manager to kind of address like, hey, this is why we stopped caring about A and started caring about A and B. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think um, I think for me personally, it hasn't it hasn't had to it hasn't made a lot of changes in, in the uh, in the way that I've addressed, uh, looked at the product roadmap and, and sort of think about the strategy for, for our portfolio. But I think it's important to take, keep that in mind at the business scale level in terms of, you know, think about, you know, if I have to pick one or the other, you know, what do I optimize for? And also thinking about that time frame, you know, cause you know, in, in the VC world, or in the startup world, you know, it's, it's sometimes a little ambiguous, you know, what your, you know, what your goals are, you know, what the time frame in terms of like an exit horizon is. Um, at least it's, it can be ambiguous unless you're part of the executive team. And even within that executive team, it's sometimes, you know, uh, 
it, you know, it's, it's not always completely, uh, everyone's not always completely aligned on it sometimes. And, uh, within, within this situation, you know, uh, everyone kind of is on the same page of, you know, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to make the company as, as, uh, grow as much as we can and, and, uh, keep it as profitable as we can. Um, which I think is, I mean, overall is, is a, it's, it's, it's nice to have that clarifying, uh, you know, you know where you stand type of thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, <laughs> I agree with you. It's always, <clears throat> it's always nice to know where you're going with this. And, yeah. uh, especially, uh, when you're talking to C-level execs and you're trying to understand, so what is it that we're doing again? Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, I'd, I'd worked, and I'd worked at a startup before that like was acquired, like, a couple months after I left and it, it had never been spoken of, frankly, like what the, what the plan was, you know, from a liquidity perspective, you know, and, uh, so I, I think, um, you know, pr- I was probably a little naive about it, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's like, once you've been through a, an acquisition or, you know, a couple acquisitions, you know, you start, learning a little bit about like the business aspect of it in terms of, you know, this is, you know, this, this is, this is how these things go. And this is what you need to be thinking about in terms of, you know, in terms of if you have to optimize for one or two things, here's what you should really be focusing on because that's what the people who are paying you are, are really focused on, you know, um, right. Right. Funding you rather, you know, um, well, paying for you or funding you. Yeah, you know. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> well, okay, our customers right. pay for us, but you know, the our, the the equity firm is the one funding us, you know. Oh, I see. Yes, <laughs> the, thank you. Yeah, that's it's an important distinction and I, I agree with you. <laughs> makes makes sense. All right. So having said all that, and and you mentioned that at, at some point did, uh, after the first acquisition uh, your job or your focus didn't change much, but then at the second one, it did. Yeah, and- it did. Um, it did a little bit. You know, I think I, I have the pretty luxurious position of, of having one of this, of having a pretty strong performing product. Um, I, I'll say some of the things that I, that I observed just through the course of acquisition was there's, um, you know, there, there's changes in the company and, you know, uh, just from a, a, a personnel perspective and uh, you also learn about your coworkers, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, things that you may not have otherwise learned about them, I, I guess also is one way to say it, you know, just in terms of, you know, people's attitude towards work, people's tolerance for risk, um that kind of thing, you know, um, you know, some people are more comfortable working in startups and, you know, after an acquisition, just want to leave, you know, they consider the exit to be, you know, the prize and then go to the next, you know, the next opportunity to do it. Some people are more interested in, in building the long term, you know, uh, thing or, uh, and, uh, you know, and then other, other people are justifiably a little, 
unsure about what to do, you know, what this all means for them on a personal level too, you know, um, when, when you see these type of things happening. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting shared experience that, uh, I think I learned a lot about myself and a lot about, uh, just business, I guess, uh, just having been a part of and, and paying attention to it, you know, and, and as a, you know, I want to be realistic, you know, a, a product manager is, is not like a, critical par- person at the negotiating table when you know these things are happening but you know i think in a way it, 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 I, mean, I wasn't negotiating our our exit or anything like that but you know right, like right. working in working in this part of the business you have a little bit of a wider angle perspective on yes absolutely on things so you, you get to empathize with those how how those negotiations happen and can think about it sort of like the, yeah, maybe this actually is the best thing for us or, or, or whatever, you know, which, you know, other parts of the business, you may not think about those, or if you think about them, it's, it's not as part of your life. Uh, it's sorry. It's not as part of your job. You know, it's like, it's my responsibility to think about these as part of my job. So, uh, it's been an interesting learning experience that, um, I'm glad to have been a part of for sure. I can somewhat relate to that, uh, uh, and again, somewhat being the key word here. I I was uh, I was present in some of the negotiations, not at the exit, but at the mm-hmm. uh, partnership negotiations. I was um, somewhat present, again, not on all of them, um, and and it was definitely an eye opening experience. Yeah. Uh, so for for the folks who don't uh, for the folks who don't participate, the folks that are not present. Uh, everything seemed to be very shady, and <laughs> what I've learned, my personal my personal view on that, nothing is what it seems. Absolutely nothing you think that's going on there is going on there. It's like completely different picture. Whatever you've imagined yourself, it's not what you think. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is one of those cases when it's totally not what you think. <laughs> there yeah. are other things that are happening, but not what you think. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I, I would add on to that, you know, if, if anybody is in a startup that, and, and seeing this kind of thing happen or, you know, experiencing it themselves would be like, don't take anything personally that, that goes on, whether it's at the large scale level, you know, like if your company is acquired, great, you know, or, or if it's at the personal level, like, you know, your boss can't tell you about what they're doing on their last business trip, you know, like, that's just how it is, you know, there, especially when it comes to, you know, high stakes financial transactions, there are, there are laws and there are rules and there's a lot of people's livelihoods tied up in it. So people are often operating under some pretty strict things that they can and cannot say just so they don't screw it up. You know, yep. like you're yep. talking about hundreds of millions of other people, hundreds of millions of dollars of other people's monies, Yep. you know? So one, one tweet by a PM uh, who heard the about something yep. could screw up the whole deal, you know? Um, so it's, it's business, man. You know. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, I, I I agree with you completely. That on that on that front, a lot of things can go wrong, and uh, they sometimes they do if you're not careful who you say, yeah, who you talk to, what you say, how even how you say it. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Thank you. That was uh, that was really interesting. 
And uh, thank you for sharing that. That it's not every day you get uh, as a PM you get to sit at the higher table. Yeah. And 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 I appreciate always appreciate somebody sharing uh, what was the, their experience uh, because I didn't have that much of mine. Uh, I mean, not all the time. So th- I think this is a good time to switch gears a little bit and, okay. and talk about the actual products that you worked on okay. because I think there's a there's a story there about what went well what went wrong how can we you know leverage that um knowledge for uh, you know for the good of uh, our mankind as the whole <laughs> and product managers particularly mm-hmm. uh sure well so i'll i can talk a little bit about the products uh, i work on uh, and our company as a whole first off um so vericode is an application security testing company we sell software to other companies to help them test for security issues. Uh, we have about, uh, well, we have six parts of the product portfolio and I manage one of those uh, products, um, our, which is our oldest one. It's called static, static analysis. And um, uh, it's, Without sounding like tooting our horn about it, I'll say you know we're one of the we're one of the most successful companies uh, in the space um, by you know a number of metrics. We have pretty solid growth. We have a large number of users. Uh, good opinions of us with the analyst community, and um, you know happy customers and, and stuff. So. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting business to be in. Uh, just, I mean, information security as a whole is is an interesting business, and uh, application security in particular is an interesting business. Let's let's focus more on products and okay. on your experience um, working within the portfolio. Yeah. So, as as a person who did all of the above, I'm I'm really curious to see or to hear rather <laughs> how you guys manage your portfolio being the individual product uh, product managers on individual products how do you synchronize your efforts if there is synchronization required or do you guys run in e- e- each of each of you running in your own separate directions uh, with the hope that we'll, you know 20 years later we're gonna meet somewhere down the line I'll, I'll say that you know we have a we have a high level uh, you know, product portfolio level, you know, uh, vision that we, that we're still executing, but the individual product teams within them is sort of a parallel play type of thing. If, if, if you've got toddlers, you know, the phrase and that, you know, you're kind of doing your own thing in the same sandbox. Uh, and, um, sometimes you, you know, you, you hand a toy off between the two of you, uh, but, Oftentimes, it's kind of you're you're moving the same general direction, but uh, doing your own thing, and and a lot of that is, is is just from a frankly a technology perspective. You know, um, we have you know the our our market is segmented fairly in, into a few different product categories, which which have some degree of technology overlap, but but not often a lot of it. So, uh, as an individual product team, there's 
there's frankly not a lot of overlap between something that like the core, you know, team of, of one product versus another is, is working on. Um, instead, what our, 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 one of our core, you know, portfolio differentiators is, is that we have a, a single platform through which you can access or interface with all of your, all of the different testing solutions that we offer. So that sort of serves as that connective tissue between the various parts of the product portfolio. Um, uh, but the teams that I'm working with, you know, is, is primarily, you know, focused on, you know, doing, doing our uh, core static analysis business uh, and, and doing a deep and uh, not overlapping with a lot of our uh, colleagues doing their own businesses. I'll say. Makes sense. And it makes it makes sense. Um in 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 a, in a larger or grand scheme of things. Yeah. It makes sense because that's what I've seen in in most of the and it's I'm I'm talking about different industries, not just your particular niche or my particular niche. Uh, it just seemed to be the smart thing to do when you're not kind of cannibalizing your own um your own customers, your own audience. So yeah. if you're uh, I, I've only seen one company that kind of stood up two product teams and had one company support legacy product and another company literally was off to the races to cannibalize the existing market mm. from the legacy product in 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 a I don't want to call it a hostile matter, but it was kind of because of the personalities yeah. that were behind those products. It was more or less hostile matter. It was kind of like, no, we're gonna take over your customers. We don't care about you. And, and and the team was really you know and weirded out if that's the if that's yeah, the word yeah. yeah that doesn't that doesn't sound like it'd be a fun place to work that's for sure if it you're was not competing with <laughs> your teammates you know it, there, there were other teams so it was not and, and it it kind of you know it was kind of unintentional but yeah. uh, I, I I have a feeling it was not entirely unintentional it was yeah. kind of like you know uh, sea level execs. Uh, Gathered in the in the quarter office, um, you know, had a bottle of wine or <laughs> something. We're like conversating, and one of them said, "Hey, listen, wouldn't it be nice if we kind of like try to introduce both products and see which one is better?" And the other one would say, "Yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea." And they did yeah. exactly like they <laughs> like they said. I mean, there there could be a certain amount of uh, you know brutal efficiency to that, but. Uh, it may not be the most pleasant place to to be working. I'll say, you know, so it takes a certain type of people, a certain type of person to want to do that. You know, it yep. sounds stressful. Yep. I'll, uh, I'll, well, yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, what I'll say is, you know, what, you know, to add on to some of you know what you're asking, you know, like as as an organization, you know, you know, in spite of our teams working, you know, fairly independent of each other. Uh, We've been trying to align more closely, uh, at least um, institution or I guess, you know, process wise, um, because because of having this shared portfolio or the shared platform layer and a a fairly complicated product, technologically speaking, uh, there are often, uh, you know, cross team dependencies and uh, things that you know, kind of, um, can come up and, and, you know, let one team block the other inadvertently. So, you know, our, one of the things that we've been trying to do in the last 
couple years has been to to be a bit more organized at a as an engineering and product team level in terms of identifying those and um, playing together in a in a big group. You know, because we have a pretty large engineering team, we have about 200, 250 engineers or so, and uh, a relatively small product management team, about you know ten people. But uh, you know, still, it's a it's a fairly big organization to manage uh, across. And uh, so, one of the things our team has been rolling out, well, has rolled out, is is the scaled agile um, framework, which is. Which is which has been interesting, you know. I think uh, I, I know it has its uh, it has its fans and it has its detractors. Um, I'm I'm kind of in the ambivalent about it, honestly. I mean, I think you know my 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 observation has been that it's it's been uh, it's been good to have uh, neutral mediators um, in the form of uh, essentially like the project managers, you know, trying to look at the team at, at what we call the portfolio level and identify cross team dependencies and, you know, and, and helping us roll out processes, you know, because if it comes, you know, because if it's being rolled up by one team onto another team, you know, that sometimes there's, you know, some feeling of, you know, who are you to tell me what I'm supposed to do type of thing. And, you know, having, having a neutral, a neutral person or a neutral team in the middle, helping roll it out, you know, for the benefit of the organization has been very helpful. And then, you know, other sort of maybe what might seem like mundane things, but important things like having, uh, having our sprint calendars be consistent between different scrum teams and uh, consistent, you know, naming practices and uh, amongst our releases and, you know, things like that, you know, that, you know, you can overcome those on a, you know, on a case by case basis, but, you know, as the organization scales and, you know, as, you know, people, people move in and people move out of the company and stuff, it's very, it's helpful to have, you know, some consistent processes that are not just like, institutional knowledge, but in, are instead just something that's defined and, you know, everybody's yeah. kind of following. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a fan. Okay. That comes out wrong. <laughs> I'm not, not a proponent of scaled agile. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a, I like instruments. I like to apply instruments where they belong. So if a company, if a team is large enough, and I think you mentioned 250 engineers, scaled agile makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've tried. We actually implemented a, a scaled down version of scaled agile, and I know how that sounds uh, for a way smaller team with mm-hmm. the purpose of scaling up. Yeah. So it was it was done with purpose, so that exactly like you said, so that it's not an institutional knowledge. It's a standard processes yeah. that are implemented within the um, delivery or engineering organization with the purpose of you know, no matter how many people there are. You know, five, ten, two teams, five teams, twenty, thirty teams. Yeah. It would be still the same process. And scaled agile is really good at that because it works on a small level and it scales up really well, which is why they called it that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and you know, like I think one, the other big advantage I've observed with it is has been that 
you know, for better or worse, it's documented, you know, it's, um, you know, it, you know, uh, there's not a single, it, there's not like a, a template of how you roll out agile, it, but if you're looking for a template, you know, scaled agile is one of the few that actually has processes around it, you know? So, yes. yeah. um, if you know that you need to do better at agile, you could either, you could go a couple directions. You find a freelance agile coach, you find, you know, a, a couple solid scrum masters who've done it before, or you could find, you know, some coaches who uh, have rolled out a, a, a process like scaled agile, and then, you know, use that as a guiding principle and flex it to whatever matches your organization, you know, and I'm not an agile coach or I, I frankly don't care. I care most about getting products out consistently and, you know, uh, predictably, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not a religion. It's just, uh, something that you got to use to make, uh, to, to serve the ultimate goal. So, um, it's not wrong or right. It's just, you got to be organized and it's hard to be organized if you don't have a template to go from sometimes. Yeah. I, I think, I think, uh, what you were trying to say at the beginning is that the, the, the good part about the scaled agile is not that it's documented is that it's documented outside of your organization. So you can yeah. always refer to you refer to it when a new person comes in, you can say, Hey, this is what we're doing. You don't have, it's not like we're doing our own thing. Yeah. It's, just you know, one of the public things that we're we're doing, and, and it makes sense. It yeah, makes and sense. and in like you know, if if there's ever, you know, uh, one thing I've read about in other organizations is you know like title inflation or ambiguities about what titles mean or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, at least uh, again, like as long as you're not too zealous about it, you can say, well. Generally, if you're looking at what does a scrum master do versus what does a product owner do versus what a product manager do, uh, you know, the scaled agile definitions are a good starting point for that, you know, um, versus like, but sometimes, you know, you can be interviewing candidates and, you know, their definition of what they did have, may have very small relation with what your definition of, of what you expect that you know, role to be, you know, so. Yep. yep. Um, I can't, this is, this is the part where I agree with my guest. This is <laughs> not a good, not, not, not what I intended, but it's, it's good to agree on certain things sometimes. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let me get back to you. Um, let me get back at you yeah. since you've mentioned product owners and product managers. Yeah. And I'm always curious to see how your organization defines those roles. Like, is there a difference? Is there a similarity? Yeah. Uh, is there an overlap? Tell me. Uh, <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, I think, um, we have had, um, uneven rollout of product ownership roles, I'll say. And I think part of it is, you know, our company has a very, very strong engineering culture. You know, it's, it's a, it's a really technical product and it's got a really very strong core engineering team and, a, and, uh, a lot of desire to keep a, sort of a light touch between the product management organization and the engineering organization in terms of like defining what, you know, how, how the, how the pieces get built, so to speak, you know, so the product owner roles, you know, we don't have POs for every single team. Um, and the POs that we have, you know, are, are kind of 
play closer to a junior PM role to some degrees in in terms of defining the overall, um, you know, making those day to day prioritization decisions about stories. But but it really just depends on the team. You know, I don't. It, it's hard to generalize just because, um, you know, I'm talking about like eight or 10 different scrum teams and you know uh so it's 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 a little bit different from every team so you you would say in in every team you have a slightly different scope for the product owner role is that what it is so the the product owner roles that we have align more with the overall um product portfolio and and are working with multiple scrum teams in the same way that a PM is working with multiple scrum teams. The difference from a day-to-day basis is that ultimately the PM gets the final decision in terms of the priorities. Um, if, or, you know, can cast the tie-breaking vote. POs do more day-to-day story writing and, uh, you know, sprint, working with the scrum masters for sprint planning uh, purposes. And, um, but, uh, we, we, we try and stay pretty tightly aligned. It's a little bit more like co-PMing, um, to some degree, but I'll, okay. I'll just say like the, uh, our, our organization is relatively small. The PM organization is, is relatively small, um, especially compared to the size of the overall engineering organization that we're working with. So we, um, uh, we kind of just, we, we try and work, uh, as make, make product owner role be as more, much of a force multiplier as it can be, you know, because, you know, like, for example, like, you know, I work with, uh, five separate scrum teams and sometimes they have stand up at the same time, you know, so, you know, the PO will be, to, will be at some of them and I'll be at some of the other ones or that kind of thing. You know, you mean the PO would have to be on the same five teams uh, sometimes, that... but you know, um, uh-huh. or we'll split between different teams doing different, you know, depending on what needs to be done for that given week okay. or that given sprint or the stage of the product release that we're at or, or what have Make, you. Makes but, sense. So, so your PO is not really a team member. He, the, your, your PO is more like a junior product manager who's, who cares. Well, let's may, maybe dramatize this a little. He cares. Your PO cares more about the product than he does for a team. Yeah. I mean, the, the product owner works on the product management team, not on okay. the engineering team. So okay, got it. ultimately, ultimately, uh, they're representing the product management team's point of view um, rather than the engineering team's point of view. Got it. Got so, it. Okay. And so that's, yeah, not, to, that's that, not to position as adversarial, but you know, it's like that's that, that tension that's always yes, uh, present and, and hopefully healthy between engineering and, and, and strategy teams. Right. And then that's, that's the good part because yeah. if, if, you know, and, and we've seen this uh, in, in, let's say I seen this in my engagements, when uh, IT becomes order takers, they have no say in yeah. uh, what to do, and they end up not having a say in how to do things. Yeah. So they can be and actually end up facing technological challenges that are impossible to resolve. Yeah. Like build this with this, 
you know, build me, uh, you know, make me a, a shovel out of sand. And you're looking at this like, what? Yeah. And, and, and this is interesting because in, in my head, in my experience, in my product mindset that I kind of advocate, a product owner is a role on, his, on the Scrum team. So product yeah. owner is an interface of the team between the team and the product management team or between the team and the business, but they are part of the team. They are not a part of the product management. Yeah. They have you know intimate knowledge of, of a product. They have intimate knowledge of technology, but in my in my product mindset, my my meaning, what I advocate for, yeah, they're on the on the other side of the fence. And and it's interesting to see how you guys are still successful, which basically tells me, uh, you know, it's not um, uh, the the part where I agree with you. It's not a religion. It's just you know. Yeah. Whatever the right tool is for the job, and if it works for you, then you know there's there's truth to it. Well, you so, know, it's it's you know it's it's not like it's all roses, and I don't want. I'm definitely not here saying all the all the great things that we're doing and and, and all of that. But it's you know it's it seems you know it's it's worked okay. I mean, I think there was it was a subject of much debate when we even because product owner is a relatively new role within our organization. You know, um, once upon a time it was only PMs. And oh, then wow. we worked with engineering managers as the day-to-day product owners, uh, effectively. So um, when we decided to start hiring product owners, it was a subject of much debate between the product, the product management leadership team and the engineering leadership team about where those uh, individuals would be reporting into. Um, and... Uh, as it turned out, and in this case, you know, the, the POs ended up reporting into the PM organization, but I'll say, you know, like, um, the PO role is, uh, you know, still needs to be a close ally and partner of the engineering team, probably closer than the PM needs to be, you know, because, you know, where there's been challenges with, with various product owner roles I've seen has been when there were, uh, you know, uh, there were mismatches in expectations or conflicts, you know, between the product owner and the engineering team. Um, whereas, you know, the PM, does, <laughs> it's it's great if everybody is always ag- agreeing as a PM and an engineering team, but sometimes it's okay to disagree, um, and that's normal. But uh, the PO and the engineering team have to be mostly agreeing at the same all all the time. Otherwise, it can, uh, it can go downhill pretty quickly. I think. Uh, Maybe. I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, from again, I'm not saying uh, this is this is the truth. I'm just yeah. kind of voicing my opinion. What I've noticed from my uh, experience working with engineering teams, working with product owners, um, and working with business analysts who are kind of proxy product owners, but not really. What I noticed is that team needs a representative. Yeah. And that's, again, that's just my experience. I'm not saying this is a universal truth, uh, but team needs a representative who understands the product, who understands the business, but is still a part of the team. And this being part of the team is really important. Yeah. It's kind of like a group spokesperson, right? Yeah, they yeah. can be assured and that is done through that reporting mechanism or being a part of the team mechanism, however the organization is structured. Yeah. 
they can uh, they need to be assured that that person has their best interest in mind. When yeah. I was product owner, I was the part of the team. I report. I we we had a massive reporting. Like I report. I was a consultant, as a matter of fact, from a vendor who was a managing team of people from the company and uh, people from other vendors. Mm-hmm. So reporting went out of the window. Yeah, completely. Yeah. All that mattered was that I was a part of the team. I am part of the engineering team. I understand the technology. I understand the pains that they go through. Yeah, but I also understand the product. I also understand the business. And when I went to bat for them, and it really was, I went to bat for them uh, against the business owner. Uh, we didn't have a product organization. We had product owners and we had business owners. Mm-hmm. It was very, very vanilla, a scaled agile framework uh, circa 2014, I think, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. And what, what happened was team knew that they can rely on me defending their interests. So if, for yeah. example, if if a business owner says, we need to do X, and team says, you know what, he's crazy, and this can only be done in this way, and then it's, it's going to take five years to build something reasonable. Yeah, I would go back to, the, to that person, and to the business owner, and I would say, what you're asking for is impossible. Not because we don't want to do it, but because... There are real reasons for that, and I was able to communicate with them on their la- in their language, yeah. on their level. Yeah. Uh, but from the technology from the technology team standpoint, yeah. And that was kind of a very valuable part, and to me was a lesson why I should be a part of the team because I wanted to be in the business side. I wanted to become a product manager, but it was very important to me as a product owner to be on the side of the team yeah. because then team trusts me to go and do things for them. Yeah, I think that that's a good point of view about it. I mean, I and I may have mis misphrased or misspoken a little bit in saying they always need to agree, which is might be, but and I think what I meant more is that they need to be on the same page, you know, in terms of uh, trust trustworthiness. And, right. But right. I, you know, I think you know it's a you know I'll say you know our experience has not been a smooth one with product owners and that's not for a lack of having great people doing them it's just we organizationally haven't figured out the best way to incorporate that role into the into the team and you know the one that you described you know sounds like a you know a good model to into that we might that that might be worth thinking about you know say so, um i'll say one thing that is interesting perhaps about, or maybe interesting, but, you know, like our, we tend to have pretty technical product managers on our team or in our company as a whole. Uh, we have a very um, technical buyer and a very technical product. Uh, so, uh, so our PMs are often serving as proxy customers and, um, which is true across the entire industry, but because we have such a technical product, we have fairly technical product managers as well. I'll say, you know, so um, the the empathizing aspect with the engineering team comes naturally to some degree. You know, I feel like I understand how our software is built pretty well and don't just come and say like, do it engineers, you know, like, I don't care, you know, um, but that might not always be the case in every industry, you know. Uh, yes, I agree. It's not. It's. It, I, I know for a fact that it's not. And I've seen. Uh, it, it, it. I hate to generalize, but 
in many cases, let's put it this way, in many cases, it uh, it derives um, the, the, from where that product manager came from. Yeah. As an example, in uh, in my organization, I have a lot of product managers who came through as business analysts. Yeah. So they are very focused on the processes. They're very focused on using the right frameworks. They're yeah. very focused on doing things by the book because that's how they were brought up. I came from technology. I was a software developer for, I don't know, 12, 15 years. Uh, then I was managing software development team. And yeah. then I kind of sort of should have been a project manager by title, but I ended up doing product management work, product ownership, product management work. Yeah. So what happened was I came from a technology side and I could always, just like you said, empathize with a technology team because I was a technical person, same way you guys are. Yeah. And... What I noticed was I'm way more, let's say, I'm, I'm way more focused on experimentation. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Whereas uh, people from a project management background are really risk averse. They don't like experimentation because, oh, my God, we're going to fail. Yeah. And that's, you know, they're scared of failure because my project failed. So it's really, you know, a <laughs> double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. kind of like depends on what kind of culture you have, what kind of uh, people you have and where they came from. Yeah. So it's a good thing you guys are all technical. You guys are already on the same page. I think that's a very positive thing. Uh, you just kind of, you know, need to warp. Again, from my point of view, n- not that you've asked, but <laughs> I'm going to throw that out sure. there. Uh, you should definitely think about how you guys build that trust relationship. Yeah, yeah. And because the whole point of um, all these processes, the whole point of all these mechanisms being in place is not to is not to really, you know, um, resolve things when everything's going smoothly, but to resolve conflicts whenever there is one. And yeah. and there's always going to be conflicts. Yeah. And what I think uh, was actually my next question for you would be, uh, how do you define the product manager role? And uh, <laughs> in, in, in not in a formal way. Yeah, and and yeah. here's what I mean. Here, here, here's what I mean. I always say, I, I usually say, a product manager is the one who's not afraid to say no to anybody. <laughs> Well, yeah, you might be afraid, I, but you you have to do it. <laughs> well, it means it means you're still saying it. Right, that, that's right. that's what matters. Right. And and I've I've got I've got some slack when when you go on a consulting assignment, uh, you can't really say no. Yeah. To the customer, you have to say, well, there's another point of view on that. But as a product manager, you end up saying no, yeah. because that's the right answer. That's how you not waste anything, not time, no resources. You know, you're not you know, pretty things up. No, we're not doing this. Let's, let's focus on something else. And and, and that was really interesting, um, I guess, experience or, or approach. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on, on what is, what is it that a product manager does? How do you define the product? Yeah. Yep. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, having come into product management, you know, fairly late in my career, not late, but, you know, in the mid stage of my career, you know, I've been working for 13 or 14 years before I started in PM, you know, and, you know, I think the, what really hit me when I started, you know, was, you know, you're the decider. And I, I know that that sounds like a stupid thing to say, you know, but like, ultimately you're the person who's got to define what the, you know, what the next thing is. And, and that, you know, that can vary from, uh, you know, the, the, the aperture on that can vary depending on, on, on the stage of the product or the, or the, you know, the, the month 
or, or whatever, you know, but, you know, it's like what I really am trying to do is, is, um, making the team, the engineering team continue to have a successful product that they're working on and, um, make the product that that team is building continue to drive success for the business, you know? So, you know, like you, I came from a, a pretty technical background and, so I, I empathize a lot with our engineering team. And, you know, when I was working in software development, you know, the thing I hated the most was not knowing, you know, what my user, what my users were doing or what my users thought of the product and, you know, what impact the software I was working on had on the business. And, you know, so I, I always think about serving both sides of it in terms of I want, I want my, I want the business to do as successful as possible, obviously. And, and, you know, that comes with all of delighting users and, you know, elbowing out the competition and all of those aspects of of business, you know, but also, you know, keep the engineering team, uh, have having success, you know, like, um, I I read this book a couple years ago and I've read it again, uh, (laughs) uh, called the hard thing about hard things, which is, one of the best business books I've ever read by Ben Horowitz. Um, and you know, one of the things, one of the things I took away, one of the main things I took away from that, that book is, is just thinking about your role as the leader in the product organization as, as trying to be, have a, a sense of responsibility to your colleagues in addition to the responsibility that you have for your users, because, you know, if you serve your users, well, you are also serving your colleagues. Well, and um, I try and keep that in mind uh, in every day. You know, sometimes it's hard when you're in the weeds disagreeing about things, but uh, I try and keep that perspective in mind because, you know, for right or wrong, you know, you're the person making the decisions. That's just, that's literally the job that you've been given. So I try and take those decisions seriously so that, um, we don't waste time on things that aren't important and, um, and, uh, that yep. they have a, a good impact to, to all parties involved, you know, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Thank you. All right. So let's move on. And I, I'm looking at my little thing here that we have a list of things to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you mentioned something about challenges where you ran beta programs yeah, and when you when you were deploying new capabilities of existing product, and that's kind of a very dear topic to me because I uh, I live this every day. Yeah, with my current product portfolio, and I lived this in my previous life where I had to uh, run after people who had no idea what I'm offering and why am I even talking to them, asking them to be my beta customers, but yeah. I had no idea what the hell beta customer is. Yeah, so tell me, what is it? What is it that you do uh, in, yeah. that, in that sense? Um, so Veracode is a has a, a pretty complicated product offering where you know we uh, we offer or one the product that I work with is effectively taking apart our customers' applications. Uh, written in a wide variety of software development languages and um, telling them potential risks that might be involved in that. So, or in, in the, in the software that they're writing. So 
the process of, of adding support for a new language uh, is a complicated one. It's, it requires a really specialized set of skills from a, just a, a straight up R and D perspective. Uh, and, but the other thing is that you don't really, your, your research can only go so far when you're thinking about, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're trying to determine what risk looks like, um, until you see real world applications, because, you know, our researchers are, are excellent and some of the smartest people I've ever met, but at the same time, you know, it's only a couple people's perspective on what bad things that could be going on in user software could be. So, uh, we have, uh, often, uh, run what we call early access programs when we build support for a new language. Um, and, uh, one of the ways that we license our software is, is basically it's on a, it's a subscription model and we're releasing features every, every month, uh, and, Included in those features that we're releasing is support for new languages. It's not, we don't license by language or, um, you know, only let you do a certain number of things, you know, that based on when you build buy your license, you know, if you buy it in January, you get all the features that we release between January and, you know, the next 12 months on your contract, you know, whether it's nothing or whether it's, you know, support for five new languages. And, um, uh, the reason I bring this up is, is because, uh, you know, a, a core part of making, um, a language, uh, of making support for a language, uh, successful is to see real world customer applications, uh, being tested so we can understand what those applications look like and make sure that we're reporting risk properly, um, and that, and seeing that benefits all of our users, this has been a phrase uh, on, uh, used uh, recently in, in different circumstances, but it's kind of like a herd immunity type of thing. You know, we're a SaaS offering. We test thousands of applications. And, you know, if we see patterns of risk in some applications, if we can use those patterns to inform the, what we'll see in other users' applications as well. And um, uh, so the tricky part, though, is starting from from zero. Of, you know, if we don't support a new language, you know, such as Python uh, or something, uh, how do you go from supporting or not supporting it to supporting it uh, while also retaining the level of quality that your users are expecting from you? And the the way that we've we've been doing this is uh, has, has been through these early adopter programs where we basically, you know gauge the interest from customers who know we know that are using these languages and you know get them to participate in uh, by by letting us test their stuff before we roll it out to the broader audience and i'll say you know it's uh it's definitely a mixed bag of success um and and, and partly is just a nature of the product you know it's it uh requires engaging a lot of different members on the customer side and um uh, sometimes it's, it's difficult to find new users if they, uh, for, you know, like our, our user base is often software developers. So if we've, if we've sold into a company that has a, a Java dev team, a Python dev team and a .NET dev team, we're engaged great with the Java and the .NET dev team, but we don't know any of the people on the Python dev team because we didn't 
you know, we didn't support, we didn't have anything to offer them basically, you know, and uh, then suddenly we have something to offer them. We've got to build those relationships within the customer to even find the people to, to work with and then, you know, build trust with them in order to, to, to uh, get, uh, get them to understand that we're offering them something new as an experiment and, you know, me, you know, meter their expectations. So it can, it can be complicated to, to find that level of, of proper engagement. And let me, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, well, I can, you guys have a sales force that goes out and builds those relationships, biz dev or sales uh, or work, something, yeah. one of those two. Yeah. So, you know, Veracode is a, is a B2B product and, you know, we have what I'd, I'd call as a fairly traditional enterprise sales engagement uh, team. You know, we have. Right. So when do you guys start? Uh, so so I'm, I'm just trying to understand the process. When do you guys start sharing your roadmap with yeah. them? Okay, sure. What? Yeah. So so one thing that's might be unique about Veracode is that we have a very large services organization. You know, I mentioned mm-hmm. I came up through that organization. Yep. Initially, we have about 100 people on the services organization. So all of our customers have a customer success manager or a, a program manager, depending on, you know, the level of engagement that we uh, you know, that, that the customer needs, um, who's our day-to-day point of contact with, with that, uh, user. And, you know, we, we publish a roadmap that's, um, about nine to 12 months forward looking and we don't publish it on the public internet, but, you know, we'll, we'll share it with customers and, um, in, uh, pretty regularly, basically whenever a customer wants to talk about the roadmap, I will gladly talk with them about the roadmap. And, and that's been one of the ways that we've actually engaged customers or throughout the course of learning about doing these programs has been to engage customers in them, in these beta programs or early access programs, you know, via the roadmap where we say, you know, like this is something we're planning to do, you know, release a couple of quarters from now. So start thinking about this, if this is something that you're interested in and, you know, start building out that, that engagement early. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's established a, a pattern where we've, we've, we have our users or our, our, uh, program managers, you know, as proxy for our users, often anticipating that there will be an early access program, um, whether we do one or not, you know, which I guess mm-hmm. is a good thing because it's at least the users are coming to you rather than you having to, to beg them. Oh, absolutely. But, absolutely. But at, but at yeah. the same time though, I'll say like, it's one thing to, to say you want to participate and it's another thing to actually participate, you know, um, Right. How much? How much of an effort is is um, how much of an effort does it requires from your customer to participate in this early access program? I mean, it depends. You know, it, it, it depends on the product. You know, I mean, sorry, I guess it, it depends on the specifics of of the given feature. But you try and incorporate them as seamlessly into the existing product as we can. Um, but. It, it kind of will depend, you know, we just released a new feature that um, required a little bit more engagement because it was something that uh, was a new thing that we, that we were building that, that wasn't related to, um, or that was not as incorporated with the rest of our product suite. So that required a lot more deeper engagement with the users than otherwise um, other, other programs would have been, but um I mean, realistically, the the level of engagement tends to be a lot on behalf of the product manager, you know, because, you know, uh, 
as, as the person, you know, defining where we're, you know, where the product is going and, you know, most involved in the day to day with it, you know, you're the person who, who can speak about it most intelligently, you know, not, not, right, not right. the salesperson, not the sales engineer, not the program manager. It's, it's you. And it's, it's, it's sometimes it's you versus, you know, 50 customers type of thing. So, you know, I used to have weeks where in the, in the heat of an, an early access program, I've got literally like, you know, 12 customer calls a week, you know, type of thing. Plus doing all of my normal day to day job of right, you know working right. the backlog and stuff and yep that's that's normal yeah. <laughs> that's normal <laughs> so let me ask you um, had there ever been the case or however you want to define this when you rolled out something in your early access program and then based on the user feedback you had to scrap it like I said nope not gonna do it how did you handle that well we've definitely uh, slowed the release of things before. Um, because based on user feedback, uh, because like I was alluding to, you know, our, 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 our research process can only go so far, you know, until you actually hit customers, you know, uh, I'm always reminded of a, a, a quote I heard, I think from Mike Tyson of saying, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, it's like, uh, your, uh, your product make it look great until you actually have a user use it and they tell you how, <laughs> how not great it is, you know? So, Oh yeah. Um, I've definitely been there. We, uh, so we've definitely slowed the release of things. Uh, my predecessor in this role, I know definitely canceled a planned release based on, uh, some early access. It, it's hard to say whether that was the right or the wrong decision. I'm not going to hindsight check somebody, you know, who did the job before I had it, but, um, it's, but it, it's definitely happened. I'll say, you know, um, but the, the converse has happened is also where we ended up just starting an EA program. And after getting some low ish level of participation, decided to just release it, um, rather than keep dragging out the beta program, because, you know, at a certain point you can say the real way to test the customer response to this is just to stop letting it trickle in and just let people come to it themselves. And that doesn't come with its, I mean, that, that comes with its own set of problems because, you know, you may have released it too early and had some, you know, deficiencies and stuff, but you know, at a certain point it's kind of like you, you gotta, you know, I, I really try and avoid the sunk cost fallacy, you know, but you know, at a certain point you got to say, well, are we going to do this thing or are we not going to do it? You know, so after you've been working on something for, you know, six months or something, I'd, I'd, re- I'd I'm, I'm always biased for just like releasing it and, you know, you see what happens. Yeah. Goes, I, you know? I, I, I agree. And I've been, I've been the same, I've been the same, of the same mind. Uh, most of the time is just sometimes uh, certain things uh, you're just can't, can't release them because, Although you get the data that you want, and I keep repeating this, I've, I've heard it somewhere that there are no failed experiments; they're experiments rich in data. Yeah, and I, I keep I keep saying like, but we're gonna learn so much, even if we fail. Um, there's a, there's a, a the other side of the um, of the coin here, and that is damage to the brand. If you yeah. fail too much in the eyes of a public of the of your audience, they will start uh, thinking you're 
you know, you're just lower quality product. You're yeah. always releasing something. And, and I've seen this happen to to a number of brands where they you, you can as a product manager, I can clearly see that they're experimenting as a user as a you know like i don't really care what drill i buy as long as it makes holes in a wall yeah i don't really care i i i'm i'm upset that i can't get things done or things that are getting done are buggy or had some issues yeah so, I mean, Google so me, is a classic example of that, right? You know, like uh, they, they, I don't know. They, they're, they're kind of like products. in the league of their own. Well, I'm yeah, but I mean, sure. like, they get held up so much as like this, you know, super innovative tech company, in, which they absolutely are. But at the same time, they will, ex- they will release half-baked experiments, get users to use them and then kill them, <laughs> you know? like Yeah, that, that's... Um, <laughs> with, apparently no, with apparently no ill effect to the brand because... Those users are not actually the users that they care about, but that's a different uh, story. <laughs> I again, I'm I'm not sure. I I would completely agree with that, and here's why. Um, and again, this may be an edge case, but just just hear me out. Back in the day when Google introduced the uh, Google Docs mm-hmm. and the whole online editing experience, and I don't know if you remember it, there was oh, this yeah. thing called Google Wave. Oh, of course I do. Yeah, I was on the beta. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> And everybody, everybody was going crazy. Like literally people were dropping Microsoft Office like crazy. Uh, people were leaving Microsoft Office. Oh, finally, we can do stuff online mm-hmm. and for free. We get things for free and, uh, and online and for free. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Right. <laughs> and it was, it was a pretty big movement of, of uh, and I I'm, haven't checked the financials, but yeah. <clears throat> I think Microsoft noticed. Let's put it this way. I don't know how much uh, fi- they lost financially, but they've noticed. And uh, I, have, I think that Google, G, I think that O three sixty five is doing better than G Suite these days, though. Oh, you just spoiled my story. <laughs> <laughs> so Microsoft noticed, and they and they and they and they took and they action. Won. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes, you're right. You're right, and that's that's what I was getting at. Not not only they noticed that they took they took care of that. They yeah. they created their own offering. Yeah. But the actual the actual trick here is that. Because Google has this notion of, oh, we're just going to cancel it. Oh, you know what? You have you know six months to get out of it, and we're just going to cancel it. Yeah. Once something reasonably comparable was available for Microsoft, everybody ran back. And that that is a kind of a, yes, yeah. Google is the most innovative company. They probably spend on innovation more than next five companies in a row. But oh, yeah. You can't. You just can't trust your business continuity on the company that just cancels things out just because. Yeah. And that's why Google Docs is Google Docs, and O365 is basically every business I know is is either using a Microsoft Office or Office 365 or something of that nature. Yeah. Almost no one uses Google Docs, and yeah. it's more or less a stagnant product at the moment. I I'm using I'm using Google Docs for some of my personal stuff. I barely see any improvement from yeah. what was, what was there three five years ago. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's probably not core to the business though. I mean, if you look at their, well, this isn't a Google podcast, but you know, like you know, it's their it's not the core of their growth. You know, it's not a core corner of their yeah, business, right? You know? But it's a product. I yeah. mean, it's a product. Yeah. It, it's a it's a it's a it's a very interesting product, yeah. given that uh you know Microsoft Office has been around for ages since last century, right? Yeah. They came in, they disrupted, uh, they disrupted the industry. They've offered something completely 
new and different, and they failed to capture the momentum because their product vision was off. And yeah. Microsoft kind of did the right thing. They let Google innovate. They picked up the right pieces, what what worked, skipped what didn't work, yeah. and kaboom, now you're you're golden. Well, and it, so, and it shows the advantage of having a already having the large install base. I mean, the key oh, feature of, yeah. of O365 is how easy it is to switch from an existing implementation that's not using 365 to to using it. You know, it's a pretty easy migration, you know, that versus ripping everything out and turning it into a new uh, a new stack. You know, it's uh, it shows how if you've got a core business, it's easier to noodle and uh, innovate on top of it than be the disruptor, you know? Yep. Yep. I completely agree. So uh, any other challenges except, uh, Mm -hmm. except for what you've mentioned, any other challenges with your uh, beta customers, beta programs, uh, any other lessons learned that you can share? Um, I think just, uh, I mean, I think the, the, the core thing that I've learned through the course of doing it and I've, and I've been doing them for, several years now, you know, probably one or two a year regularly has, has been that, uh, you got to decide how long you're going to let something run and have a launch plan. Even if that launch plan is, is just like simple of it's like, you know, where this is going to run for three months and at the end of three months it's GA, you know, um, where I've personally gotten tripped up and where I've seen other, you know, other products gotten tripped up, you know, like, you know, uh, whether it's other products uh, that we've experimented with in our company or at other companies is, has been just a poorly defined exit criteria, you know, um, and you just got to stick to your guns on it. And I, th- you know, I think, you know, going back to your, uh, or going back to what I was saying earlier about thinking about the, your relationship with the engineering team and, and uh, you know, doing, doing good by them uh i think i i think that you know for the um on you know for for the good of that relationship you need to you know have a plan to release it you know um or have a clear plan why you're or have a clear explanation why you're not going to release it and and go in with the expectation that that it might be an experiment but you know if, if you go down the path of saying you know here's a new feature we're building and we're going to roll it out for a quarter and then it will be released for everybody at the end of that quarter. You know, you should execute on that. If you say you're going to execute on that and then you don't, you know, that'll lose confidence in, uh, you know, that will, that will lose confidence of, of many of your colleagues potentially, you know, as well as your customers, just because, you know, they, 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 they may not know if they can trust that it's going to be released. You know, I, I had a, you know, in the most recent early access program I was just running, you know, one of the customers I was speaking with in it was, it was really, it was a really eye-opening thing that he said to me, which was, you know, he was like, well, I, you know, I didn't want to start using it and get, and like it if, if I wasn't sure that you guys were going to release it or not. And, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, man, of course we're releasing it. I got like 12 month backlog plan for this thing. And he's like, oh, well, that's all I needed to hear. And then like, you know, became one of our biggest users of it, you know, but like, you know, in his mind, he wasn't really sure. I mean, and didn't, you know, so having just being clear with your users and being clear with your colleagues that that's something, you know, that, that that's a, that that's what the plan is and, and 
do your best to execute on that plan is is, is pretty important. Yeah, you makes know. sense. I mean, I've, I've I've lived through a couple of products that had that notion of promising and not releasing. Yeah, and uh, I've I've lived through a product uh, that was kind of the opposite. We didn't say anything, and then oh, here's something. Oh, here's something else. Here's something else. And I'm yeah. like, oh my god, how are you guys doing? So yeah, I I know exactly what what you mean. Yeah, uh, that's 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 use, useful, interesting, and useful. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this, um, because, uh, we're coming up on time pretty soon. Uh, and, and this kind of ties in what, with what you've been saying, how do you measure whether your initiative, your capability feature or the whole product is successful? Mm-hmm. How do you know, uh, what is your measure of success? So this is, uh, actually a question that when I was interviewing for my, uh, the job as a product manager with zero product management experiment, I was asked in the interview <laughs> and, um, by, by the VP of the product team. And, you know, I, I gave sort of my naive answer of, you know, like, are your users happy with you or, you know, okay. that kind of thing. And, you know, she was like, nah, it's, you know, the, the ultimate arbiter of success is, is how's the revenue looking from, it, you know? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's true in many cases. It's not true in a hundred percent of the cases. It, it really depends on the scope of the product that you're uh, responsible for. But I would say, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good proxy of, of a lot of things I'll say. Uh, and I would say, you know, to the people I know who are in product management roles that may not have a, you know, direct bookings coming into their product or, or, uh, or, or whatever, you know, try and understand the impact that what you're working on has to those bookings and if you can see that those bookings moving in the right direction, you know, you know, trying to try and determine if you're contributing to that, you know, in, in whatever is the appropriate metric for that particular product. I mean, I have perhaps the quote unquote easy uh, perspective on this of that, you know, my product is sold by licenses. So I have a pretty easy uh, metric of success. You know, if we sell more licenses this year than last year, it's doing okay, you know? Um, uh, but then, you know, you can look at it, you know, at the other, at the sort of the smaller scale level of, you know, you know, we have a lot of different individual capabilities within that product. And I would say, you know, when we release support for certain features within that to try and define, you know, where you'd like to see the adoption of it within, a couple of uh, quarters or, you know, by the end of the next fiscal year or whatever the time frame that you decide is and, you know, do what you can to, to, you know, to try and achieve that. Um, but I'd say unless you're working in a nonprofit or something, you know, actually, no, I, I, I see where you're going with this. <laughs> I see where you're going with this. Um, just, just again, and I think I, I just made that example last episode. I um I don't remember the the product. So we had a core product offering, and I was developing a bunch of products around it, kind of complementary slash um, 
doing something something in parallel to the core product. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we were thinking would be a commercial product was uh, some some sort of an integration. I'm trying not to go too deep into details, but mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's a it's a retail point of sale, so it needs <clears throat> it needs inventory to function. And um, we've built an integration to pull in that inventory without manual input. Mm-hmm. A pretty obvious solution, pretty obvious everything, yet no one in the market has done that before. So we were the first. And we gave that away. We didn't charge a single cent for it mm-hmm. because it, would, it, did not, it did not make any sense to charge for it, yeah. although we were a for-profit company. Yeah. It didn't make any sense to charge for it, but it gave us a huge... Uh, competitive advantage, yeah, and it resulted in a huge improvement in retention. Yeah, so I, I always say, uh, and I was actually, if, if I was interviewing you, I would actually like your first answer better. I understand you weren't able to expand on it and and actually say things like, "Hey, it's a good proxy measure for ROI or customer uh, retention or whatnot," but. Ultimately, you're right. If your customers are happy, then they keep paying you, keep licensing your product, keep paying you for your yeah. product, and everything goes well. Yeah. If they're not happy, and and you're not the only game in town, which is what usually happens, then they take their business every somewhere else, and yeah. your ROI doesn't look that pretty anymore. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's a. Uh... Yeah, I mean, we're we're in this. Uh, we're actually just have released literally last week, which is why I have time for a podcast now <laughs> uh, uh-huh. to to do a uh, to do a uh, uh, release a new product, which we're not charging for. It's a it's included with our existing licenses. So our measure of success for that is going to be user adoption, right? You know, but that's again, it's kind of like the feature that you just described, where it's uh, it's a delighter, you know, and it will help you know retain customers it could be a differentiator when looking at a competition and you know ultimately we'll still have an uh, a maybe more difficult to directly measure but still uh hopefully attributable effect on the on the you know the success of the product as a whole financially and otherwise you know um yeah and yep. you know Makes i think sense. it's you know and I, you know, I love company culture and, you know, uh, fun organizations as much as everybody else. And, you know, this, sorry, this sounds like a stuffed shirt thing to say, which I'm totally not, but, you know, it's like, I think it's, it's, it's always important to keep in mind. And I think this is something that became even more clear to me just through the, the learning process of, of being involved in acquisitions is like, you got to keep a, you got to keep your numbers in mind, you know, because, you know, um, whether you whether you're thinking about it actively or not, someone's thinking about your numbers. Um, so it's it's best to not be surprised about it. You know, whether you're a public company and it's your shareholders, or whether you're a, 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 a early stage startup and it's you know your one investor. You know, somebody's thinking about about how your performance is because you know part of Part of working in 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 high tech, or a part of working in 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 a capitalistic global economy, is you know the the desire to have a return on investment, and uh, that's that's why we have the that's admittedly have very privileged position of of getting you know a pretty 
high paid job working in a pretty interesting industry. You know, we're all working from home still working in the tech business. And, you know, that that doesn't come by default. You know, it comes by, you know, being successful financially as in this part of what yep. you're working on. You know? I uh, That part I can totally agree with. Yeah. So as we coming up at the uh, almost at the end of the show, um, I, I'm trying to wrap up. Yes. Uh, are there any questions uh, for me? And that's that's my regular thing. I always ask this question at the end. Uh, if you have any questions for me, uh, hopefully I will be able to answer it in a couple of minutes. So no questions about how to solve the world hunger or anything <laughs> like that. Something something. Let's let's do something simple and about product management. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think just from what I read and, uh, you know, I've shared my point of view on this and, uh, you know, a lot of questions I see people asking on the blogs or the Twitter sphere or whatever you want to call it is, you know, how do people get into product management and, you know, which I think is an interesting question to, to ask, but I think, you know, maybe a question that might be more interesting to interesting to ask would be like, what do you think people should expect to get out of going into product management? <laughs> oh, that, that's a good one because <laughs> first of all, no, no one ever asked me this before, and second, I didn't think of that. Yeah, you know how come I didn't think of that? <laughs> so, um, I would imagine. To I mean, I can only speak for myself. I would imagine there would be some people that would agree with this. I what I personally like is solving problems and. Uh, back in the day when I had my own uh, business, I never said, oh, it, we're in web design or we're in web development. I was always saying something very weird like, oh, we're solving business problems with technology. Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's what I ended up doing, being the product manager. Yeah. So for me, it's these, this challenge of finding another problem to solve and figuring out how to solve it and then actually carrying that solution from an idea – where I used to be stuck at to the actual solution, to the execution of that solution, to taking something to the market so that people can use it. Like yeah. in, in, in uh, uh, one of the previous jobs, I built a product. It was actually a prototype. I built a prototype uh, together with uh, another developer. We kind of put it together using rapid application development technology, not even you know true coding uh, to speak of. We kind of put it all together. We showed it to a director of the department that that thing was supposed to be working at. Mm -hmm. And she liked it. She was like, yeah, okay. And two weeks later, we found out that they, since it was a prototype, wasn't even alpha or beta, there's no security, Mm -hmm. just, you know, a demo of functions that was there. So she quietly introduced it to the whole department, about (laughs) a couple of hundred people, and about 50 of them started using it. So I log in into my own system and I found 50 users actively throwing production data into mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was, well, first of all, it was mind boggling. Second, I got, I got a lot of flack for it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, that was like, I, I came home when I learned that. I, I understood that, you know, everything, everybody's going to start demanding my head because it was highly regulated environment. Right. But I came home and I, 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 for some reason, I felt, better than ever before it was felt very proud of myself and yeah. and the reason why i felt very proud of myself was because i found uh, i found the solution so good well not me personally we as a team but as a product manager i found the solution to a problem the the solution was so good that people were okay with using barely functioning prototype right right 
instead of whatever the hell they used before. So it was it was that that feeling of you know fulfillment, that feeling of happiness, is what I keep feeling as I work on other products and and finding these other solutions. That's that's kind of a that's kind of a thing for me. So yeah. that's why I keep doing product management because I've switched a few careers in my life. Yeah, I, I love this one probably more than anything I've done before. Yeah, I'm 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 right where with you, and I mean I think. Uh... I, I've, I found the most enthusiast, enthusiastic PMs to be those who came to it after having been in other roles because you, you've seen multiple sides of the fence, you know, um, versus like, you know, if you're 23 or, you know, you don't, you may not have a lot of perspective on, on what, um, on if this is something that you really, you know, are, are, I hate this word, you know, are passionate about or, or, you know, that you're, you know, that, that is going to be satisfying for you personally, you know, like, you know, it's, it's an interesting job and a lot of people want to do it. And I think it's a great, uh, opportunity to learn about business and technology at the same time, but that may not be what you want to do with your life. And, you know, when you, when you start the job, when you're 35 or 40, you know, it's, it, you know, like I started when I was, yeah, thirty-five as a product manager, and I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm glad that I'm doing this now versus when I was when I was younger, you know, because I have, uh, I feel like I've got a little bit, I, I, I you know, you can inherit the 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 perspective of having done a lot of different other things and and see the value of having being able to take things across the finish line and um, satisfy your users and stuff. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I, I completely agree. And um, I, I keep seeing someone on, on social media, mainly Quora. Uh, I, I, I do a lot of Quora whoring. And uh, <laughs> I, one of the things I see there is like, well, I'm, I'm going to get an MBA and become a product manager. Is that a good enough path or should I just go straight to product management without the MBA? And I'm, I'm looking at these guys and I understand they're college kids. They're trying to map out the path mm-hmm. for their career. But uh, product management is not what you want do something else. I don't know. Open your own shoe store. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, go uh, hike a mountain. And I, and I would say to anybody who's listening and, and I'm, and I'm tempted to respond to people who ask these questions on, on Reddit or Quora or whatever, you know, I'll say like, as the person on the other side of the table, who'd be interviewing you for that role, you know, I'm more interested in like, you know, the, the perspective you're bringing, not necessarily if you've got an MBA or, uh, yep. or, or whatever. It's like, it's like, how, how, how is your perspective going to help the success of our business? And, and are you going to be able to empathize with our users and help them, you know, uh, help them succeed by building something that they, that they need and therefore helping yep. us to succeed, you know, you're, yep. yeah, you know, MBAs are great. And one of my, you know, best mentors, uh, in, in, my career, you know, came to PM after having been gone through his MBA program, but you know, like it's a, it's just a tool in the toolbox, you know, it helps you learn that business aspect that, but it's not, it's not the end all be all. That's for sure. Yeah. I completely agree. All right. Uh, we're, uh, we're at the end. Thank you so much for being on, uh, on this episode. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a very uh, good conversation. I appreciate uh, you having me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. And uh, until the next time. 
listening to the Real World Product Management, and I've been your host, Vlad Grubman. Until the next time.